Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. As I told you all last week, Arete Complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. The towel was originally created to deal with the slipping and sliding that happens in hot yoga. Arete Complete is the official towel of Peloton. And the tennis towels are ultra-absorbent, beautifully designed works of art. The colors really pop like nothing I've ever seen. The design is phenomenal. And listen... Sweat management is a real thing, and there's really nothing worse than a towel that isn't absorbent. This is the solution to those problems. See them at aretecomplete.com, A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com, and use the code SHAP20 in all caps for 20% off of your order. Today's guest was born and raised in Rolling Hills Estates, California, and in 1977, at the age of 14, quarterfinal the U.S. Open. In 1979, she beat Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert back-to-back to win the U.S. Open. In 1980, she got to number one in the world, and at the 1981 U.S. Open, she defeated Martina in the final. She won 30 tournaments in a very brief period of time. She was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1992, and today is her birthday. Tracy Austin is my guest. Are you there now? I am here. Where? And are you in Rolling Hills? I am. I'm at home, like I've been most of the last, what, eight months? Yes. You live there. You're born and raised right there. Actually, I was born and raised in Rolling Hills Estate, which is the town over. And so five minutes away, you're correct. I haven't, haven't moved far. So I see my third grade teacher at the grocery store and <laughs> still play at the Jack Kramer Tennis Club where my, my raised my kids as well. So I haven't, haven't, haven't moved too much. Do I have it right that you have another son that's going to USC? Did that just happen? It did, yeah. So our third child, our third son, uh, just started SC in the fall, but from Zoom. So he was in his room here at home until last uh, Monday and they no no stu- no other students are in school and actually he's done with the first semester but they went uh, back all the athletes a lot of the athletes have gone back to train for two or three weeks before Christmas so uh, not many people there but at least he got to step foot on USC campus and is training with the team so he's playing tennis too he is. He is. The woman you hear is former world number one. I love to say that when we have a world number one on the show. She flew to the sun in 1977 and 78, 79 and 80 and 81. She, Martina and Chrissy battled, it seems like, every week. Her win-loss percentage for her fast and furious career is astonishing. I mean, you won, generally speaking, like just under 80% of all your matches. It's really astonishing, and it's really an amazing story. It's uh, Tracy Austin. Thank you again for coming on the show. Great to join you, Craig. So listen, as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set's the off-the-court report. 
California is back under very strict rules. Tennis is in a funny spot. How are you guys been dealing with that? Well, it's, uh, as everybody, we have to go through the different transitions and the, the ups and the downs. Um, you know, last night, I think we went in the wrong direction as far as closing down even more. And so there's more restrictions at the tennis club. The first seven or eight weeks here in California, we couldn't go to the tennis club. I mean, obviously, there's much bigger things going on than tennis, but I think that you're asking about how we've dealt with the tennis situation. So it was a lot of private courts in the beginning, um, and you know, everybody being, being safe when we went back to the tennis club, but there's so many um, people here in California that have COVID, that have contracted COVID, that are in the hospitals. The ICUs apparently are overrun that I think uh, we had to lock down even more. Yeah, I don't know if our listeners really know this, but you're kind of a, you're almost like a big time tennis mom. You're, you're low key. And I've, I've seen you, you know, dressed like it's, you know, like for winter at USC matches <laughs> and right, you bundle up and you're in the, you're in the crowd. What's it like being a tennis mom through this? Well, actually, that's been the one silver lining is that Brandon, obviously, unfortunately, had to come back from USC. They were supposed to be playing uh, UCLA that day when everything got canceled. They were actually training to, and warming up to go to drive over to UCLA without any uh, fans in the stands. And they got word that the match was canceled. A couple hours later, the, the season's canceled. A couple hours later, school is done. Go home. So, uh, you know, with Brandon coming home and then Sean was a senior in high school, uh, our youngest kid, it was, the, they only had each other to play with because we really didn't want to go outside the family. We wanted to try to stay safe. So for seven weeks, it was every day on a private court here in our community with Brandon and Sean on the court for, you know, three hours a day. So that was back to being a, a tennis mom full time. And, and I loved every minute of being on the court with those two. You loved it every minute on the court. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what's better? I love tennis so much. There may be only one person in our family that loves tennis more, and that was my mom. Uh, boy, would she have loved to seen, um, you know, our kids compete and play all of these matches. So for me to be able to spend time with my kids again, I had, you know, Brandon, four years at USC, traveling so much, I felt like I hardly got to see him. So for him to be home and then practicing with his little brother to actually have someone in the family to train with, uh, they had a good time. It was, it was just, uh, as I said, a silver lining for us. Now, your son, Brandon Holt, who you're speaking of, you guys turned him pro, right? He turned pro. He did. He did. He had the opportunity, like all seniors, to go back for a fifth year, and he decided to to let that go and, and to turn pro. So it, it's, a, it's a tough start. It's a tough time to turn pro, as it is for everybody on the tour. But at that level, there are just not many tournaments to play. So what's he doing every day? How, how, what are his, I, I just saw that he played an ITF somewhere, right? Uh, yes. he, yeah. He's played a couple of tournaments. He's played a few exhibitions uh, in Los Angeles, luckily living in the LA area. There was a consistent UTR event down in Newport beach. So there was some competition, um, but now he's in preseason training at, at Carson. So he's with, you know, Bradley Klon and, and Taylor Fritz and Marcus Garone and, and all those guys. So I actually, when he walked out the door this morning, I said, Brandon, you're lucky that you live here, that you've got all those guys to practice with. And, and uh, you know, who knows how long that, that preseason is going to be because next year it, it, it looks uncertain. Hopefully we have the, the Australian Open in early February. Let's move into the second set since you just alluded to that. This is the on the court report. They pushed Australia 
Um, we're hearing, I think Wertheim yesterday reported that the cancellation of Indian Wells is imminent. I've heard that that's ditto for Miami. Oh, I didn't hear that. Whew. Well, I don't think it's announced, but I'm hearing that they're unwilling to play without fans, and that seems to be the big issue amongst just the safety of it all. Well, what can you tell us about what the beginning of next year might look like? You know, I think it's just more uncertainty. As as the virus seems to be growing and, and struggle, people are struggling across the world, um, you know, Australia obviously has done a fantastic job. They have closed down, and apparently in, in the state of Victoria, where Melbourne is, where the Australian Open is being played, they haven't had COVID cases for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, but it is interesting to now bring in a thousand people from all over the world. I mean, that, Craig, is one of the aspects I think that makes it so difficult with a global pandemic is because tennis players are crossing, you know, country brown boundaries. They're flying across different continents. And it's like the NBA here. They stayed in a bubble. It's in one country. It seems like it's a little more easy to contain. So I think uh, you look back at the U.S. Open, I think they did a phenomenal job to keep everybody in the bubble. They were the first one to kind of go out and, and have such a big tournament. For the most part, it was really, really safe. Um, you know, the TV, we enjoyed watching the TV and the tennis every night. We kind of got used to having no fans. I think the tennis players have really taken uh, a new perspective and have a tremendous appreciation now for what they do and you know, the revenues are not coming in without the fans. And, and as you said, if Miami cancels, that's that's a big revenue for, for these tournaments to put these tournaments on. From what I hear, Australia is going to bring the players in, pay for their airfares, pay for their hotels. It, it's a tremendous expense. Um, but uh, we're just hoping to get some tournaments on the schedule in, in 2021. And is college tennis, are they going to go? What are they saying over there? Yeah, I haven't read my emails this morning. I mean, it feels like it's so fluid that uh, you know, every 24 hours, every week, things are changing. But for now, for, for my son, it's supposed to go. Um, but there is, as I said, in California, more of a lockdown as of midnight last night. You know, I think there's – what the pro level has done well is, is tr kind of front load some of the um, – prize money. And I think the Australian Open is planning to do that as well for the qualifying I hear is going to be outside the country, which seems smart to me. Um, and then when you go into the country, you have that quarantine uh, wh while you're practicing with just certain players that you're, you know, they're keeping it to a minimum of who you get to practice with. But when you think about it outside the top 200, these players are really struggling. There's, you know, think about the player that is 28, 29, that is kind of on the fringe, they were going to give it two or three more years, but now it looks like it's going to be at least a year where it's stop and start. It's very difficult for them. No doubt. And I even, I'm curious to know what like Roger will do. Cause it seemed yeah. to me that he, and you know, maybe Venus, they wanted to maybe take another tour around the sun and wave goodbye to the fans. And, and, and that's like, who wants to do that with no fans? Like, why would you want to go into a bubble if you're Roger Federer yeah, that's a tremendous point. Obviously, Roger's 39 and Venus being 40. And, you know, father time always wins at the end of the day. So you think of the percentage of time that they have left in their careers, and that's just getting eaten into. Uh, very difficult. Serena is another person. Serena trying to get that 24th major. And, uh, you know, she's 39 right now. And 
Um, I think it's going to be, it's just more difficult for players that have a, a limited amount of time. I mean, you think of even Andy Murray, who's trying to come back from hip surgery and, uh, you know, just not being able to play some of the tournaments. Rafa's 34. He'll be 35 at, at, uh, in the spring next year. So that Grand Slam total count is really quite interesting of who's going to end up now that Rafa's joined Roger with 20 and, and Novak didn't get his 18th at the U.S. Open like we thought he might. So there's just there's so many storylines. And at the end of the day, it's all about dealing with adversity. And at the end of the day, also, it's about being safe. You know, I had Barbora Stritsova on the show shortly after Indian Wells canceled last March. And I said, you know, will you quit? Are you, because it seems like she's ready to stop. She and was. She, yeah, and she doesn't want to stop with no fans. Like, she wants to play Wimbledon and stop. Or she wants to play a proper U.S. Open and stop. So it's sort of maybe prolonging certain players to, to not stop. Well, and it is so interesting because you could take each individual person and some people may have had an injury like Ro Roger. He wasn't going to be playing anyway. And you have, you know, some other players like Streets of a who maybe thought, wow, I, I got this imposed timeout, this, t this imposed pause. So now I kind of feel rejuvenated and I, I'm ready to go play some more. So everybody was in a different situation. You have young pros that are coming on the tour that maybe were not quite fit enough and they had some opportunity to spend longer time with the trainer to try to get ready for three out of five sets. So there's uh, everybody's at the, you know, at different age, different ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between. You know, some of the players in the middle, it seems like Halep seems really relaxed about it. She chose not to play at the U.S. Open. Ash Barty, she hasn't played since February, and she's still number one in the world, but she seems quite content to wait until it's the right time to come back. It's uh, really different how everybody has uh, treated these different scenarios. No doubt. Curious as well. It's so much bad news in a sense. I, I hate to harp on it. Um, there was a lot of great tennis played this year in spite of, of this really difficult time. Who stood out for you as some of the great stories? I, I, I can't help but think about Vika. I thought that she really oh. played like the best tennis I feel like I've ever seen her play this year. There were so many great storylines because it was a compressed season. I think we were all focused when they were having tennis. And for Vika to come back, and I, I don't think she had won a title for four years. She hadn't won a match since Cincinnati last year. And then out of the blue comes and wins Cincinnati, New York, and gets to the uh, finals of, of the U.S. Open. And, and she's back. All of a sudden, she's you know that pinpoint accuracy on her ground strokes. And she was serving, she was serving better. She just seemed to be also having more fun. I, I, I think that was really important for her to get back to, to basics. She seemed kind of heavy before that as far as taking it all in. How can you overlook Kennan? I thought that was a fantastic story because she didn't have great results, the two tournaments leading up to the Australian Open. So I don't think a lot of us would have said, of course, it's going to be Sonia Kennan winning the Australian Open. And then the way that she competes to win that three-setter in, in the finals against Muguruza. And then the last one I want to mention, and there's so many to mention, there were some great storylines. Jen Brady, of course, at the U.S. Open, but Fiontech at the French. I did not see that coming outside the top 50, although I knew last summer when I saw her play in Canada that she was going to be a huge star with great talent, tremendous spin on her shots. 
uh, you know, she was very aggressive. She's great with defense. I didn't see her winning the French, only losing 23 games. It, it, that was phenomenal. The French seemed to be like the real outlier tournament. Like we didn't know, like you really went wide open. I guess, I guess it seems to go pretty wide open often actually in history, but the other, the other player at the French that was interesting was Podoroska, right? She, she buzzed through that draw. No one had even really seen her play. You got that right. (laughs) I had not seen her play and that's the thing is coming through qualifying oftentimes you've got some matches under your belt so you're feeling more comfortable the draw kind of opens up um that's why it's great to hang around i mean these some of these players that are are mid-20s and that sustained effort when you have that opportunity you take it and she certainly grabbed it now she's life has changed now she's not in itfs anymore you know those smaller events now you're, you're in the big time and i'm sure she feels so much more comfortable that she belongs competing with the top 50. I love the way she played tennis. And we went out of order, but Naomi Osaka's effort to um, sort of cement herself as uh, maybe, you know, the best hardcourt player in the world. And she just was named one of the Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year for her, her athletic effort, but also her social justice initiatives that she took this year. Um, what could you say about her? Wow, what a transformation from Indian Wells a couple of years ago where, understandably, she struggled. She won that tournament out of nowhere, seemingly. She struggled to make that victory speech, and she was extremely shy, to a couple of years later where she's the activist. And actually, Cincinnati closed down, for, shut down for one day because everybody was you know, behind her. Um, she went to Minneapolis, I guess, with her boyfriend to protest. So that's one side where she's so confident, but I think it was the tennis that obviously helped her to become this, such a confident young woman. And she did a great job during COVID. She lives out here in LA. And I know that Wim Fassett was here for months before, uh, the U S open. I think Naomi was really focused in, you know, she had a little bit of a lull, but she wanted to go back to the U S open and, and win it again. She loves to play on that surface. She was fit. She was strong. She played incredibly well. Uh, chose not to go to the French. You know, shortened up her year. But to win a third major at such a young age is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. Um, we talk about her sort of social, socially awkward, and 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 a little bit childish kind of style. But she isn't on social media. She's she's slick and she's sharp on social media. It's almost it's generational and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but she can't give a speech, but she can, you know, she sort of rocks her social media in a very meaningful and poignant and sharp way. Well, I think she can't give a speech now. And I wasn't being critical of her. I mean, she was so young and she was so shy. That was at Indian Wells when she won her first title. So it's been wonderful to see her transformation and, she is obviously the highest paid athlete on the women's side uh, last year. So she's being pulled in so many different directions. It was took her a little bit time to get used to that landscape, the pressure at the top of the game. Um, but I think she's set now. I think she really has a strong foundation with her team. She feels comfortable. There was some rockiness there when um, she got rid of Sasha as well. And that's, that's always difficult. Um, but I think that she seems in a really good place. I mean, a lot of the women 
from whether it's Coco Goff at, at this age and whether it's Serena, who seems excited to still be trying to compete and, and play for that number 24. you got everybody in between, whether it's Halep and Kvitova and Svitolina, who's never won a major, and Pliskova, who's not won one. Now we just got to get some, some tournaments. I mean, the women had two smaller, I would say, smaller-ish events after the U.S. Open because all of the tournaments in China were canceled. So they've really had it tough. Women's tours in um... – it feels like dire straits right now. That's almost out of my pay grade. I don't quite understand the the machinations of, of that and, and how they're going to get, like you said, tournaments in and matches in. Um, you mentioned him quickly, but what an effort by Wim Fassett, right? Uh, to, to, to get his player ready and to go win seven matches in, you know, this, this sort of kooky bubble is a tremendous effort. It is, and I think that coaches oftentimes don't get enough credit, and it's really difficult for a player to find a coach that speaks to them, that that, that, that voice really works. So that seems to be working well for Naomi. Um, and, you know, I think that's one part of the game that's not talked about enough because you get these coaches, like Conchita Martinez coming back with Muguruza. Muguruza had been struggling before that, and – in 2020, here comes Conchita back, who she had won, helped her uh, when Muguruza won Wimbledon. And now Muguruza seems just much more settled and much more clear on, on her game plan out there. The real most conspicuous players on the women's side that were not around was, as you said, Barty, Andrescu, and I think yeah. Bencic to me. To me, Bencic in 2019, I think she semi the U.S. Open and the French, from what I remember. But those three players really are – they didn't play this year. <laughs> yeah. I think with Barty, we all know why. I think it was just she was not comfortable leaving Australia with the virus, and I think that's completely understandable. I think we have to, we have to understand that, you know, everybody feels differently. Uh, you know, that's a long flight. She's a long way away from home. She, her life had changed so much the year before as far as winning her first major, becoming number one in the world. Even her financial situation was was off the charts. Now it was, uh, you know, it was life-changing. So I totally understand that one. And Rescue, I was really disappointed, not with her. It was injuries, but to not see her be able to come back and play. I absolutely love watching Bianca play. Yeah. She is an incredible athlete. I mean, she slides on the hard court. She's got power off of her ground strokes, a lot of rotation. She can slice all of a sudden. She can drop shots. She can all of a sudden sneak into the net. Um, you know, she fights. She's a great competitor. To me, she checks all the boxes and so young winning the U.S. Open. So I expect a bright future. Uh, again, I think it was her world changed very quickly and she had to get used to it. I, I see that on social media, she's training down in Dubai. She looks very fit. Uh, I was on a couple of Zoom calls with her during the U.S. Open. Uh, she seems happy, and I, I think she's raring to go. And Benchich, do you know anything about Benchich? Um, I don't. I saw okay. her on social media this morning just saying it's Monday again. So it <laughs> seems like a lot of, lot of Groundhog Day yeah. for um, – for, for the players just training. And that's another aspect, Craig, to talk about is the players are used to having an off-season about seven or eight weeks at the end of the year. And a couple of those weeks, they take off completely, get away from the game, and then it's back in the gym and they've got a target. This, this target keeps moving for them. As athletes, that's very strange to not know when you're going to be playing, 
you know, how many tournaments you're going to be playing. Everybody's in the same boat, but I'm just saying that's, that's so different mentally to have to make that adjustment. It's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's starting to mess up everyone else too, right? The press, the media, the broadcasters, the producers, we're all sort of, we're in a limbo that's tough to, tough to deal with. I think the world's in a limbo, and, yeah, you know, but, but as athletes, it's, um, you know, I, I think it's just even more difficult for athletes because <clears throat> I wonder if some of them start to lose motivation. Uh, just quickly, Joker, team, Rafa win the slams, Medvedev played amazing at the end of the year. Is there anything, you know, that was glaring about men's tennis this year that kind of resonated with you? I loved it. I absolutely loved the team was able to come through at the U.S. Open. Once Novak kind of defaulted himself in the fourth round against Karenia Busta, boy, was that a missed opportunity <laughs> with Rafa not there, Roger not there, and Novak seemingly playing so well, um, you know, having won, I think he won Cincinnati right before. Did he win Cincinnati? I think he did. He did. Yeah. And he was the clear favorite there. So, taking himself out and now you got team and you got Zverev and you got all these guys going, wow, the, the top three are not here. I have this opportunity. And we saw the pressure of Zverev and team trying to close that match out in the finals. I thought that was so interesting mentally and, and psychologically because they were both Tight having a tough drums. time. I mean, team, the yeah. last four or five games, I don't think he hit over his backhand once. It was a slice. It was a slice. It was a slice. He had to grind to get himself back into that match. Saucer struggling with his serve and the double faults come into play. We'd gotten so used to Rafa and, and, and Roger and Novak kind of just so sturdy in the big moments. It was actually entertaining to try to see who could grub their way through that final. Great to see team finally get one after losing three. Um, Medvedev beating team and Rafa excuse me, beating um, Novak and Rafa to win ATP Tour Finals. So it's now he's got a big one. Tsitsipas has a big one in the ATP Finals. You know, teams won a, a major. You can start to see the next guys coming through, and it's exciting. But the, but the top three are still around. One of the things that stuck out for me this year was how good Tsitsipas is and how good he seems like he's going to be. I absolutely loved watching him play on red clay. I love his game. I love his style. I mean, his serve is, is a little different, but it hits its target so well. Um, he's got incredible talent. The offense is great. He seems to be comfortable and gain, gaining, uh, becoming more comfortable at all times with coming forward. I, I love watching Medvedev, six foot six, and the guy is an incredible mover. He's like the a best. grinder from the, the baseline. Where, where do you get him because he covers so much court uh you know Shapovalov he's this slashing lefty with the you know the the big serve these guys have big personalities Felix I think he's going to be exciting he's so young I think he's only 20 years old I think he struggled um, this year pretty significantly it seemed he did but I kind of like a sophomore slump big breakthrough and yeah. now the expectations are there yeah I just think his talent level is so big it will take him some time to adjust. You know, the mental leads the physical. And I think it's, it's just getting comfortable with being in the position that he is in. And we saw that in that U.S. Open final, how um, they hadn't really been in that position to, to win. Team wasn't, uh, the, he wasn't the heavyweight favorite um, before in his other three finals. And here he was supposed to win. 
Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. My question to you is, really, how did you get so good? Because, <laughs> we, well, we've got birthdays coming up shortly, really this week, which is kind of fun, but or I guess next week. But when you were 14, I was five, I think, and you were in the quarters of the U.S. Open. So did you play junior tennis? Like what, how did this happen that you got so good? Yeah, it, it's crazy because after getting to the U.S. Open quarters, I went back and played the 16 and 18 nationals the next year. And talk about pressure, talk <laughs> about, you know, suppo supposed to win. Um, actually, Pam Shriver went back and played the 16 and 18 nationals as well. So it was kind of, that's, we were the first ones to kind of be that young. You and Pammy. Um, you and Pammy were. Yes. Yeah. Were you I think like so. were you guys one and two through through those like I don't know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old? Yeah, at four. Not not when Pam was younger, but then she kind of grew into her her body and the big serve and the volley. So yeah, when we were fourteen and fifteen, we played each other in the finals of the 16s and the 18s and, and stuff like that well, it's funny because when i would get ready for the interview i was going I, I saw i read i watched an interview with pammy and she said that you you two had static and that when you do that you had to you had to kind of work it out she said you know, she was the the, the guy the, the the interviewer was asking about all the different players in pro tennis and she was giving quick, she's like, oh, you know, we came up together and we didn't quite see eye to eye. And then we, we, then we, then we did. Well, you know, I beat her 13 times in a row in junior. <laughs> so maybe that was the static. I didn't, I mean, we are different on the court. I didn't, I didn't have any problem with, with Pam on the court. Um, but I, I will say after, after we played, you know, we became, much, much closer. I think when you're young and so different, I'm extremely quiet on the court. She's extremely vocal. 13 times in a row probably didn't help. Um, but we have a nice a, By the way, 13 <laughs> times in a row probably did not help. And one story that's <laughs> funny is that we played at intersectionals in Philadelphia on grass, the worst grass in the world. I won't tell you which, which club it was. And Pam actually was started winning in the third set. She's up 3-2. I see the clouds coming. They're dark clouds. I'm thinking, okay, can it rain? Please, I got to rain. 4-2. She gets to 5-2. Downpour. It rains. We go back the next day. Courts are too wet to play on grass. We go back, play on hard courts. I went 7-5 in the third. That will uh, create static. <laughs> so who turned you pro was it donald dell that turned you like who decided that you were you were gonna turn pro my i did uh i actually got to the u.s open quarters at 14 the u.s open quarters at 15 i think i was top 10 in the world top 12 in the world and i still was an amateur and a good friend of ours from New I'm York. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Could you explain that? So were, were you like a, a, a sophomore at Rolling Hills uh, High School and you were playing tournaments through the year or you, or you been pulled out? No, no, no. I was still going to regular public school. And after the U.S. Open, that second year I got to the quarters, a good friend of ours in New York, Dick Zausner, he pulled me aside and he said, I'm just not understanding this. Why are you not turning pro? I think you're ready. And I said, well, I don't know if I'm physically strong enough, and I'm not sure if I can make it. And he's like, you're top 
12 in the world, I think it's time. And so he convinced me. I'm a very conservative person. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of probably could have done it a, a few months earlier, but I think it's better to err on that side rather than go to pro, go pro too early and, you know, cut out your options. Do you remember the first time you sort of laid eyes on Chrissy and first time you saw Martina? First time with Chrissy that I can remember was actually when I was her ball girl at the Virginia Slims of Los Angeles at um, the old sports arena. And it was the finals of the Virginia Slims of LA. And she was playing against Yvonne Goolagong. So that was pretty cool to be a tennis player who loved the sport. And when you're a ball kid, you're that close to the player and you're seeing how they react in between points and how they, you know, deal with different situations. So Absolutely, I remember that. And waiting around, all a whole group of us waiting around for them to come outside the locker room when uh, when when they were done. And what, like a year later, you were playing her in Rome? I mean, is- two years later, I was playing Chrissy at Wimbledon. I played Chrissy in the third round at Wimbledon for the first time. Center court. Center court. What's what's that experience like, though, to be so young, to be at the pinnacle of the sport? You know, I just—it's it, not like you go from you know, 100 to near the top of the sport. I just felt like I was going through every level. In the juniors, I would try to win the 14s before I moved to the 16s and and, and yada, yada, yada. I don't know if you know the story about when I played my first pro tournament. It was actually a complete uh, accident. It had been raining here in, in L.A. for about three weeks. We have no indoor courts. My older brother, Jeff, played on the tour, and he was going to be playing an event in Portland. Um, the week between Christmas and, and New Year's. And he said, Mom, there's a women's tournament up there. You know, Tracy hasn't had any practice. Why, don't, why doesn't she go with me, stay with the family that I'm staying with, and you know, it'll be a good time. So I went up there, played the pre-qualifying, the qualifying, got into the tournament, kept winning. Jeff said, I lost. I got to leave. You got to come up here and take care of her. So that was the first tournament that I played. I beat Stacey Margolin in the finals, and it allowed me to play two tournaments at, at the Virginia Slims level. So these days, when someone's young, they plan and what tournament they're going to play with their agent, and you know it's a big deal. I kind of like that it was organic. That's unbelievable. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's so crazy. How important was Robert Lansdorp to your career? Wow. Extremely important. Uh, I got very lucky with the timing because Vic Braden started – a lot of us off and Vic made it fun when you're young it's hard the game is hard and I think by him keeping it fun I stuck with it and I loved it then Robert came to our club when Vic moved away to start a a tennis uh, academy and Robert was seven I, I excuse me I was seven and Robert as you know is pretty hardcore he's pretty tough but he's not just tough there's something behind it where you feel or at least I felt, and I think a lot of people that get Robert, they feel like, okay, if he thinks I have more, then there must be more. And I feel like he has confidence in me. So there were a lot of tough hours out on the court with Robert. He's a perfectionist. He wanted to get it right. He made you hit the same shot over and over, felt that it, that it built um, that ability to come up with that shot in the big moment, but also built your, your concentration level. So I think that uh, it was kind of a perfect storm for to grow up in Southern California with all those other kids that were also trying to go after the same goal with Robert on board. You know, he's, he's considered a ground stroke guru 
Is that fair to say? Is did Absolutely. he did, did he help groove your strokes? Yeah, he's a perfectionist with the ground strokes. I was talking to a, a fellow student of, of Robert's about two weeks ago, and we were laughing. Okay, maybe we should have gone to someone else for the serve or, or you know, for the uh, for the other strokes. But for the ground strokes, I still think Robert, um, you know, Lindsay Davenport was his Pete Sampras, Maria Sharapova. You can go on and on. There's, you know, 40 or 50 players. Mesquina went to, to him as well, an uh, important time in, in her career. So I think he doesn't get enough credit, though, for – the mental aspect that he helps to develop because he was so tough. Um, you know, he would cheat you to try to see how you would deal with adversity. Yeah. I, I talked to Robert on his birthday, which is in November. And I said, do you remember cheating us? He goes, I never cheated you. I said, Robert, of course you did. If we were winning 17, 12, you'd say it's 17, 12 for you. And we just had to deal with it. So those are the kind of things that, that he would come up with these ideas to, to make us tougher. And Robert Lansdorf, for our listeners, I mean, this guy is, I think he should be in, is he, he's not in the Tennis Hall of Fame. He should be in the Tennis Hall of Fame. He even within the past few months just moved uh, some twin young kids. I think he's been working with some kids that- From Chicago. Are in play to, uh, they just moved him to David Cass and, and he's still developing like real deal players. And it's been a lot of years. Yes, I think Robert is about 82 or 83. Um, and he's still out on the court about two or three hours a day. He's yeah. not feeding. Someone else does the feeding. But I went over to visit him when there were a couple of kids that were really talented. And he wanted me to come take a look at them. And he still has it. He has their respect. Uh, he gets those kids better very quickly. So... You know, I've just I've been watching all this tennis. I've been watching all your tennis, and, and I'm curious to know how important was winning the Italian Open mm. to the really just sheer dominance that you 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 had those 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 really those two years. Uh, I think. I don't know about dominance, but I think the Italian Open was very important. Just to go back, I was 16 years old, uh, playing the Italian Open, 1979. Uh, Chris Everett had won 125 consecutive matches on clay. She hadn't lost on clay in six and a half years. I mean, those are just crazy numbers. And so I'm playing Chrissy in the semifinals. Now, we had just played Fed Cup together the week before. So we trained a, a whole week together. Uh, which was obviously great practice. I had beaten Chrissy at Madison Square Garden um, prior to that. So I think that's always important to have your first win so that when you walk out on the court, you feel uh, some belief. So that match was probably four hours long. I'd love to see a, a, a video of it. I, I don't know if it's around anywhere, but I eventually won 7-6 in the third and, and, and then took that title. So I th think that was really important for me to take a big title like that when the U.S. Open, you know, came around, uh, what, three or four months later at the end of the summer. Now, is it true that you didn't play Paris and you didn't play Australia? I'm, not many people played Australia anyway, but is it true that you didn't play those events because of school? Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> my biggest regret. Um, yeah, I mean, you got to remember, not everybody was playing even the French at that time. Um, so you know, there were some, some, some awkward winners at, at, at the time, but 
yeah, I remember my mom saying, you know, why don't we get you a tutor? She, my mom was not pushy at all, but she realized I had opportunity and said, why don't we get you a tutor or do some homeschool? I said, no, I really need to go to regular school. Because remember, you're talking about a pretty shy 14, 15, 16-year-old. My world was turning upside down pretty quickly. I was doing commercials in New York at the Plaza. I was, you know, <laughs> traveling all over. I wanted some sort of normal. I could go back and, and be with kids my age. But I think I could have missed those two weeks of school. That would have been smart. What's the story of the dresses? How did that come to be? And, and for our listeners, all you got to do is go on the internet and Tracy is just, you know, really world famous for the clothes she wore, right? Like when she had these tartan dresses and, and the, the famous pink dress that she won her tournaments in, but they are designed by the foremost designer in tennis history, Ted Tinling. And I'm just curious to know how that all came to be. Well, I think people, there's a misconception. When I first came on the tour, I was wearing what they called pinafores. There, there were not a lot of clothes for a young lady. I was four foot 11, 80 pounds. And those the dresses had a pocket. So it was very convenient. They were very comfortable. Um, but the brand but, was pinafore? No, it was called Little Miss Tennis. Little Miss and, Tennis. And yeah, people got it confused that my mom made those dresses, was, which was not <laughs> true. It's funny how something starts and it gets perpetuated. But at 15 years old, Ted Tinling, who was a dress designer all the way back to Sausan Langland. I mean, he was a little bit eccentric. He was awesome. He's six foot six and bald and had this huge presence. He lived in Philadelphia. The nationals were played, the 18 nationals were played in Philadelphia. And if you won the 18 nationals, you got a blazer made by Ted Tinling. It's amazing what can motivate you. Yes, I wanted to win the nationals, but I wanted something from Ted Tinling. My sister, who played on the tour, had been dressed by Ted. So that was the first time that I met Ted Tinling. And after that, he, you know, you think about it, he dressed almost everybody from Maureen Conley all the way to Billie Jean King, Margaret Court, um, you know, all, all the way through. And what was beautiful about Ted's dresses was that everybody got their own kind of design and their own personality. Rosie Casals, she got black velvet with sequins. And, you know, so to be dressed by Ted was a big deal. You sort of were like the preppy handbook with uh, your, your style. I don't know what my style was. I wanted it to be feminine. I wanted it to be colorful. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to not to be too tight because I wanted to be able to move around. I thought you looked cool. Um, but your dress has like a, it has a pocket right on like the stomach. It did. And so if you remember when I first came on the tour, the ladies, you, you wouldn't remember because you're younger, but they literally would have two balls in their hand at the first serve went in they throw it back you know you can't have that a ball rolling around behind you and you know now the ladies kind of put it in their shorts on uh, on the if they're right-handed but for me it was just easy to, to have a pocket remember rancho sanchez vicario had that that belt in the back where she put the ball so like everybody's got their, their their own style whatever makes you comfortable i mean look at rafa nadal all his twitches and, did, and quirks did you ask for the pocket of course you asked for the pocket yeah do you have any feel for how many dresses Ted made you? I could go up in the attic and count because, bless my mom, she kept every single dress that Ted made for me and every single sweater that he made. With oh, come her. on. Yep, every single one. So I plan on someday, you know, my last child just went to college, so I'm a little more, um, have a little bit more time. But to, I want to go through all of those Ted dresses and, and just see what's up there. 19... 
81 final was the windy day, right? That was the big windy bad day. That was windy. About just about as windy as I'd ever played in. About the worst wind there ever was on Armstrong's day. It was packed to the gills. But I got to ask you, because I just watched a, a highlight reel from it, and you're walking out onto the court with Martina, and you guys are both holding, your ladies are both holding roses and your rackets, and she said something to you, and you smiled. You guys were, ta- you, you were talking. Do you recall what she said? I would have no idea. No idea. That was a long time ago, Craig, <laughs> yeah, and I'm, yeah. sure, I'm not even sure if I heard it at the time. You're walking out. Because if you remember Armstrong, you go down some stairs un- into kind of a tunnel, and it's dark yeah. under there, and then you come into the light with a lot of people in the stands. I'm sure I was nervous. We had waited a long time for McEnroe and Gerlitis to finish their match, so the nerves were even worse. The conditions were horrible. It was so windy, which nobody's ever going to play their best tennis in the wind, so you're just going to have to deal with that adversity. I mean – um, and it seems like somehow you found your inside out down the line forehand, like right at right at the breaker. You get yeah, to the third, and you serve for the match at at six five third set forty fifteen. And Martina played well, she but Martina did. Martina played well, and then you had another match point, and she played well. She did. I mean, the whole thing though. I don't watch that match. I think I've watched it a long time ago if I ever watched the whole thing. And then, as I said, I watched it a couple of days ago because someone said it was on Tennis Channel. So you're right. I didn't remember that I had three match points at 6-5. If I had to play a match now for the U.S. Open title and I had three match points and didn't convert, I would be wrecked. I wouldn't be able to get back on point. So watching the match, I was pretty proud of that. And the key was just – being critical, I hit the ball a little too short to Martina's backhand. She was salivating, waiting to get into the net. It's windy. Once Martina comes to the net, she's got, I think, still the best volley in women's tennis at whatever age she's in her, her 60s. Huh. Um, you know, it's tough to pass her. It's tough to be precise. It's tough to get that lob over her head. So I decided in the tiebreak I needed to be more aggressive. I needed to force the issue and, and go for my shots because if I didn't do it, if I was – uh, too complacent, she was going to take the net over. So that's where those three winning forehand down the lines came from. I guess I just saw the opening. Man, you know, it's funny, too. Tiebreakers go so fast. They, so they, fast. They can go so fast. It's like yeah, you I mean, were up 5-1 before you, – you, you were up 5-1 before it was – I felt like it was two minutes. I to 10 if you get to a third or a final set and a fifth set in, in the men's because, as you said, it just – it goes too quickly after a long match. And once you get behind, it's so tough to catch up. So, um, you know, a, a couple of things happened well for me. Those forehand down the lines at the beginning of the tiebreak, she got a little bit upset. Um, you know, that, that didn't help her. I don't think the wind, she really was distracted by the wind all day. I grew up playing at the Kramer Club, but also at West End Tennis Club where we called it West Wind. So I think that helped me that I was practicing so much at, in a windy atmosphere that I kind of just said, you know what, it's windy on my side, it's windy on her side, just deal with it. If you had to describe your career to someone who maybe doesn't know too much about you, what would you say? Oh, wow, that's really tough. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, too short, first of all. Uh, I wish I had listened to Billie Jean and some of the trainers about stretching more. Um, but yet, at the same time, so appreciative. I, I love tennis. I still play four times a week. The fact that I was able to do something that I love for a living, it allowed me to do the commentary that I do now, to meet so many friends internationally, to compete. I, I loved competing. I'm just very appreciative, I, I guess I would say. I mean, my style was being very consistent, pretty accurate. I'd say mentally tough. Uh, I was just actually watching the rerun of the U.S. Open a couple of nights ago with my kids. My kids had never seen it, so it was pretty special to ha have them watch. A, a friend called and said it was on, so we turned it on. But um, for, for being so young, I was, I was pretty tough mentally to go through ad adversity and, and injuries and, and come back. And, and uh, so, yeah, I'm just very appreciative for the career that I had. Were there injuries that really shut you down derivative of being so young when you look back? I think it had a lot to do with being so young, probably also the fact that I'm just five foot five and not as strong. I, every injury that I had, I think I wanted to go back so quickly that I went back too soon. So that would be the other thing I would tell young ladies, like Andrescu, if you got an injury, just stay away until you have time to spend in the gym. You got a long career ahead of you. You know, get that fitness trainer that you believe in. Um, you know, sports science is, is so much better today. But, but without a doubt, I think my stature didn't help. How's your body now? Do you feel, you feel pretty good? I feel pretty good. You probably don't remember. I was also in a car accident when I was about 26 years old. So that pretty much destroyed my right knee. But when you, if you were to see a picture of the car, the fact that just my right knee was destroyed and that I was not gone, uh, again, it kind of opens your eyes and, and paints, a, paints the world a little differently and you have a new perspective. A guy hit me. I was in New Jersey playing team tennis. He hit me on the left side. Uh, he ran through a red light about 65 miles an hour. So the fact that I, I'm still here, uh, I always think of August 3rd as my second birthday. How did broadcasting come to be for you? 1983, I was the second seat at Wimbledon, and I had been working with Tony Roach for about mm, 10 days to two weeks prior to, uh, prior to Wimbledon. And again, five hours a day with Tony Roach was just too much. It was, I got a stress, frac stress fracture in my back and wasn't able to compete at Wimbledon, ready to go home. And NBC called and said, hey, do you want to do some commentary? Bjorn Borg, funny enough, is, is going to be doing the men's side. And so I said, sure, I can't do anything with a stress fracture. Stayed around, worked with Bud Collins, who we know what a large personality he is, um, great mentor that he was, uh, got into it, but obviously played still after that, so didn't go into it right away. But I think the broadcasting, what I like best is, you know, Craig, I wasn't, an overpowering player, but I, I was a thinker out on the court. So really kind of good at picking part, uh, you know, my opponent's game and what I needed to change in first set, second set. And I still enjoy that in, in the broadcasting now, whether it's the mental part, the ebbs and the flows, the changes in strategy, the changes in tactics. Uh, I, I really enjoy different personalities as well. Did, have you ever like coached at a, uh, elite, high-performance, international, pro level? 
Uh, yes, I worked with USTA for a few years here at Carson. Um, I enjoyed it. And I think that's something that I could get into. I have, I have been approached by multiple players, yes. But raising three sons, I was never interested in. That's a, that's a big-time commitment. Oftentimes, it's 20 weeks, 22 weeks on the road. Um, that, was, that wasn't something that uh, looked attractive to me. I, I do love coaching, though, and I like to see the changes. I, I like to see the mental part because oftentimes the difficult part that, that hangs people up is, is the mental part uh, of the game. So many players can hit the forehands and the backhands. So, yeah, all of it and all of the above someday, but uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. Well, the reason I almost ask is because quite often I don't think you get enough credit as a broadcaster. I think your perspectives are always spot on. I also think that unlike others, you do your homework. You never come into a broadcast booth unprepared, and, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love it. I, I enjoy it. What was it like seeing – Lindsay and Pete and Sharapova and all these players come through your neighborhood. It was awesome. Uh, you know, I practiced with Lindsay a bit when she was 16, a few times, saw Sharapova come to the club. I saw her focus level. Um, you could tell the talent was there. Pete obviously was a phenomenal mover. He was really one of the first players that I, saw who had Pete Fisher, who was really the architect of his game. And Pete Sampras would go to different coaches for different parts of his game. Somebody helped him with his serve. He had somebody else, Larry Easley, help him with his volley. It was Del Little who helped him with his footwork. Um, and I thought that was just brilliant. Well, listen, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't quite realize how important the Kramer club is to your story and your life. I knew you, I knew you grew up there, but I didn't know your mother was the pro shop, uh, <laughs> ran the pro shop. I mean, you, you really, really are synonymous with that club and it's just an awesome club. It really is. It was Jack Kramer who obviously wanted to start a club, was good friends with Vic Braden. He said, Vic, find me a property to buy, give me a good location, you know, with great weather Vic found that and started the club. It was great to have Jack Kramer there in the early days. I can remember the likes of Rod Laver. And Rod Laver actually met his wife at the Kramer Club. Come on. You know, Kenny Rosewall would come in. All the Australians would come in for the Pacific Southwest and train. Well, but hold on. Um, did Rod Laver, did he picked up one of the members? No, I'm not going to say he picked up, but he met a, a young lady that, that came to the event. And okay. Rod told me a story. At Ojai, they honor somebody every year, the Ojai tournament. And I interviewed Rod. He told me a fantastic story that he met this young lady that he liked. They went out on a date, and he actually left his jacket, his blazer, in the back of her car on purpose so that she was going to have to to call him, and they would have to connect again. Seemed to work out well. They got married and, and had some kids. Man, these tennis players are so <laughs> slick. He left his jacket in her back seat. Smart, you know? He won two majors, and he figured out where to leave his blazer. Two slams, two slams. Oh, two, two slams, sorry. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I just say something and you say what comes into your mind. Oh no. No, no, it's, this is good, this is good. Okay. Favorite racket? Wilson. Current racket? Oh, current racket? I don't even know what I use. They send me it and I play with it. You're a Wilson, you're a Wilson player? I am. For your whole life? 
No, actually, in the middle of my career, I had my own racket with Spalding for a few years. So I'm going to give 50% to Wilson, 50% to, to Spalding, but I'm back on board with Wilson. You're with Wilson? Yeah. You're a Wilson player. Yep. Your grip size? Four and three-eighths. How did you string your racket when you were winning all those tournaments, 30 tournaments? With gut and about... 52 pounds and I still use gut and I still play with 52 pounds. You're 52 pounds. Always. Always. Yeah. Uh, where do but you, you know what? I don't, I don't string my racket. I know it's supposed to be quick, but I don't string my racket all the time. So it's probably what I'm really playing with is about 45. <laughs> yeah. Now, where do you keep your trophies? Uh, my U S open trophy is right there. Yeah, because see yeah, because I was doing this, some zoom calls during the U S open. And I have a few, I don't know, in the family room, but most of them, I don't know where they are. You told a funny story to Luke Jensen that the first U.S. Open, you didn't even get a trophy. You're exactly right. Because when I went to move out from my parents' house, I said, okay, mom, the only two trophies I want are the U.S. Open trophies. And she said, well, unfortunately, there's only one. So apparently until 1980, they just gave you a gold ball and they didn't give you that big old beautiful Tiffany trophy. Do you save your credentials? I think I save a number of credentials, just in a big kind of bucket in the, in the garage. So that would be interesting to go back. We're all so busy, we don't go back and, and pay attention, but someday. Your greatest win? Greatest win. Uh, let's go with uh, the first U.S. Open, because I think anytime you win the first major, it changes your life forever. So that was the, beating Chrissy in the finals. And your, and your worst loss? Worst loss. Oh, painful. The semifinals of Wimbledon in 1980, losing to Yvonne Goolagong in three sets. That was my big opportunity. Well, you thought you had a shot, right? You thought you were going to play really Chrissy did. in the final, right? Yep. You, you must have heard. Yes. So I was, I think I beat Yvonne easily in the second set. I had all the momentum and Yvonne was very difficult to play. She changed the pace. She hit slice. She came forward at awkward times. So, yeah, at, at that time, I did think that I had a big opportunity. You mentioned, too, that you, um, you looked you, – you, she, uh, she was sort of a, an idol of yours. You, you liked the way Yvonne Gulagan played. Can you explain that? I liked the way that Yvonne played. She looked like she was having fun out on the court, so smooth, such an incredible athlete. But I also liked the way that she was as a person. She just seemed pretty content. And it was beautiful. Years later, we played, had a Legends tour. And it was Martina and Chrissy and Billy and, and Yvonne, Virginia Wade. And I got to spend a lot more time with Yvonne. And yes, that's exactly the way that she lives her life. I actually visited Yvonne during one of the Australian Opens that I was doing commentary. I surprised her, knocked on her door. And Roger, her husband, said, oh, well, Yvonne's out back. She's fishing. Went inside. We had a nice chat, some tea. And uh, she's just a beautiful, beautiful person. Your favorite tournament? Favorite tournament? I'm going to go with U.S. Open and then honorable mention Stuttgart. Your favorite? Why Stuttgart? Well, it was the first tournament I ever played as a pro, and uh, I won it a few times and won a few Porsches, and I just have good memories there. It was played in a small club at the time. Um, you know, they kind of built a stadium around the center court and it was just just good times good feeling they took really good care of us hilton head which is now become <laughs> charleston was also a favorite Wait, no no mine. hold on a second hold on a second you said you, you sort of you went by that very quickly you said you won a few porsches yep that's true so i at 15 i won my first um 
my first ever title as a pro. And obviously, I couldn't drive, so I gave that red little 928 to my mom. And Hang on a second. So you win the money, you win the you win the money, you win the trophy, you get a Porsche, and the Porsche ships to the United States? It does. It's shipped to Manhattan Beach or the Porsche dealership. We went down there, and you got to pick out the color, and uh, we picked it up. Yep. So you gave your mom a Porsche when you were 15. I did. I gave up. You know what? She deserved it. I tell you what, if you <laughs> know what, what she went through and taking us, all five of us, because I'm one of five that played tennis, she was really the person behind us. I think every person that's done well in whatever, it's piano or you know, school, whatever it is, there's somebody behind them helping them get to where their lessons and, and mom was that person. Just always supportive and a fantastic tennis mom. Well, hang on. Now, go through it. Your brother, Jeff, played at UCLA. and He played pro tennis. What ranking did he get to? I read recently. I don't know, but I did read an article about him recently because he's a top agent now. He's Steph Curry's agent. I think he got to top 50 in the world. My sister, who is a little older than him. Don't tell anybody I said that. But she played on the Pro Tour as well. She played one year at UCLA. They played mixed doubles at uh, Wimbledon together. And then Doug is the next son. He played at Long Beach State, didn't turn pro. And then John um, played at UCLA, and we won Wimbledon together. And you said it quickly again, too, but your brother Jeff is Steph Curry and Giannis's agent. Yes, he is. So Jeff is... Uh, Jeff is busier than ever. I he's like the biggest every- agent in basketball, and he's an agent for Octagon. Isn't that right? He is, and he is so humble. And uh, Jeff and I play in part of a workout every Tuesday and Thursday morning. And when we go to pick up the balls, Jeff oftentimes will be on the phone. And I, I, I don't hear numbers, but I can hear that he's talking about important things. Um, you know, I think the draft just happened or the real, I don't know, whatever it's called <laughs> in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So he seemed to be very busy. He loves it. He's just such a, he's my agent as well. He's so even keeled. He's so fair. He's just a, he's just a great human being. Your brother, Jeff, I mean, his, he, he's, he's in the middle of probably the biggest contract negotiation there is with Giannis right now. I didn't you, even know that. You can't so tell I us talk- anything about that. You can't tell I don't, us anything. I don't, I don't know because I don't ask him. I talked to him yesterday, but we talked about other things, but I should, maybe I'll call him and ask him, but I'm sure he doesn't want to talk about it. I'm sure he will not talk about that. Uh, your favorite city? Favorite city? Um, oof, gosh. How about home? Um, I, I, there's Tracy, so many. you love home. You love I it I do there. love home. Yeah, that actually was a problem because I was in Europe for six or seven weeks when I played, and I just wanted to go home oftentimes. But, uh, yep, so I'm living in my favorite city. I'm guessing your favorite court must be in your favorite city. Your favorite court? Favorite court... I would say, how could you not love Wimbledon Center Court? I think that's the most gorgeous court. But at the same time, U.S. Open, um, I think that's where I had my, my best memories. Your favorite forehand? My favorite forehand, Rafa Nadal. Backhand? Uh, favorite backhand? I wanted to say Ken Rosewall, but I'm not going to go with that. Let's go with um, Roger Federer. No, actually, Novak Djokovic. Boy, he can plant that thing on a dime. You like Novak's the best. But can you articulate that Rosewall backhand? I mean, for it to come into your mind first and foremost, I mean, it's, isn't it sort of like a flat kind of slice that, that, that was like thick and deep and never missed? And never missed. I, you think about it, 
we're playing with different rackets then, I, although I think he might have had a metal racket towards the end of his career. But Kenny had, a, a like you said, a fat slice, a, a flat slice. But that thing stayed low. Uh, it made his approach shot very tough to, to defend and try to pass him. He was quick at the net, made his backhand volley that much better. Uh, again, it's about precision. It's about consistency. It's about making it awkward for your opponent, and that's what he was able to do. I've had the pleasure of getting friendly with Trey Walkie, and I've never seen the Rosewall slice up close and personal, but Trey kind of hits the ball like that in like this sort of like super clean, beautiful way, and, and I can't help but think that it's reminiscent of what Rosewall did with the ball. Yeah, great feel. Great feel for the ball. Your favorite volleys? Favorite volleys? I'm going to go with Stefan Edberg. And your favorite serve? Favorite serve? I'd like John Isner's serve. A lot of people to like watch? to. Are you talking about to watch or just to have? Just whatever you want to say. It's just a 10 ball scramble. You can say whatever you want, Tracy. Okay, you're scrambling. I love it. Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is the queen of the court. If you could make a change in the sport with just, you know, kind of one swing of the racket without any aggravation, what would it be? I think for everybody to work together and the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, all the grand slams, um, oftentimes it feels like, you know, they're on different pages. One thing about the pandemic, I think they're realizing that tennis could be in trouble if we don't work together. And it seems like we have done a good job with that. First and foremost, I uh, just, this has been a great, great chat. What's the back end of the year, aside from your birthday, what's, what else does the back end of the year bring for you and your family? Well, there's not a lot going on because everything's closed down. So it's really just trying to stay safe. Um, Brandon's training at, at Carson. Our oldest son, Dylan, he's living up in L.A., so he'll come back for Christmas. And it's, it's Sean will come back from, from USC. So not really exciting times. It's more like hunkering down and making sure that uh, you're doing the right things. Do you have any marching orders from Tennis Channel that, we, that you can share with us? No, no marching orders from Tennis Channel. You don't have a feel for what's going to happen for, for next year as of right now? I don't. You know, John Wertheim, his tweet came out, and then you're telling me that Miami might be canceled. So I think it's, it's all fluid, and we're kind of holding on for dear life to see what's going to be played. And, uh, I mean, it's just a crazy time for the world, 2020. Let's get to 2021 and, and make it much better. Listen, you know, I feel like the, I, was, I was trying to make some inroads to talk with you two years ago. I actually watched your son beat Taylor Fritz at your club. I saw him beat him at Jack Kramer. And uh, I'm just really happy to have had this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, Craig. I know that you love tennis. You've got a great passion for it, a great knowledge uh, about the game. And so kind of nice to talk to a, a fellow tennis nerd. I could talk tennis all day. <laughs> uh, Tracy Austin, have a terrific rest of your December and holidays, and you are released. Thank you so much. Happy birthday to you, and happy holidays. Huge thank you to Tracy Austin, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. 
And once again, Arete Complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. They are A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com. The towels are a tremendous gift for any tennis player. Use my code SHAP20 in all caps to receive a 20% discount. We are still taking orders for the tennis t-shirt of 2020, the Quarantine Classic. It's a throwback to the shirts we would get as juniors back in the day. I'm taking orders for the Blanc, the Terrebat 2, and the Ver. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.